I am not aware sitting here today of a company that's 100% insourced. I've never seen someone go preclinical to commercialization with the same partner. Pharmaceutical Technology presents the Drug Solutions Podcast, where the editors will chat with industry experts from across the pharmaceutical and biopharmaceutical supply chain. Join us as experts share insights into your biggest questions, from the technologies to the strategies to regulations related to the development and manufacture of drug products. This is the Drug Solutions Podcast. Hello everyone, welcome to this episode of the Drug Solutions Podcast. Today we'll dive into outsourcing strategies in biopharma with John Colang, VP of Product Development and Manufacturing for TFF Pharmaceuticals. I'm Meg Rivers, Senior Editor for Pharmaceutical Technology. Before we get started, a shout out to our sponsor. This episode of the Drug Solutions Podcast is sponsored by Curia. Curia is a global contract research, development, and manufacturing organization offering products and services across the drug development spectrum to help their partners turn ideas into real-world impact from curiosity to cure. As ever, a big thank you to all our sponsors for supporting this editorial podcast. In this episode, I had the incredible opportunity to speak with John from TFF Pharmaceuticals about what the biopharma industry tends to outsource, specifically as it relates to development and manufacturing, outsourcing strategies in general, and then what the industry should consider outsourcing more and less, and of course, loads more. I will not keep you in suspense further. Let's just jump into the interview. All right, John, thank you so much for joining me today. Happy to be here, Meg. Let's jump into the questions. Obviously, we're talking about outsourcing strategies. One thing I'm curious to know is overall, what tasks does the biopharma industry tend to outsource at present? As we're recording this, it's 2022. And how does this compare for development versus manufacturing? Great question. And the response is really based upon the size, the magnitude, the experience, and really the model and objectives of the company at hand. What we typically see here at TFF for companies that are both small and large that are looking to outsource specifically specialty expertise to support their programs. Now, with that being said, you know, more broadly in my experience, what I find being outsourced today can really be any and everything. It's not uncommon for smaller companies to be virtual, in which case they outsource from a, at least a drug product development perspective, the manufacture of the biologic, the manufacture of the finished dosage forms, as well as the clinical studies and ultimately the regulatory aspects that require the NDA or other regulatory filings. I will conclude then that on the other end of the scale, right, where you have a very large company with a lot of internal resources, they may be very narrowed and focused to where they use outsourcing to complement their internal team and internal expertise. When you say complementing internal expertise, have you seen a trend as to like for the larger companies, what they tend to have in-house versus outsource? Are there like certain tasks or things, or it just all depends on their given expertise? Specifically for my experience, Meg, what I find are companies looking to outsource to have access to technology, know-how, capabilities that are typically unique. Companies themselves, you know, when we talk about larger pharma companies, you know, maybe even mid to larger pharma companies, they have in-house access to equipment to do some of the work. 
and that's both on drug substance and drug product. And what we find for the large pharma folks is that they do have what I would say general manufacturing capabilities. So they understand how to make their product. They have access to what I would say off-patent technology or some of their in-house technology. What they don't have access to are a lot, or at least a lot of times, cutting-edge technologies that are just coming online. One thing you had mentioned about like sometimes there's like in-house manufacturing and different things. How much does in-house knowledge impact partnering like with another outsourcing partner? So partnering twice, but you get the idea. How much does that impact what you do as compared to, let's say, a smaller company that really doesn't have a whole lot of experience and is going to lean on their outsourcing partner? Even very small companies that may not have a core drug product development team are oftentimes supported by experienced consultants or others operating on their behalf. And it's usually that team that identifies then third parties to do development work with. And and I'll always start with development because you have to do development before you manufacture because the development is where you bring the active drug substance online as well as in a formulation. And then ultimately that's converted into product that's manufactured under good manufacturing practices or GMPs then to support clinical studies and ultimately commercialization. With that being said, usually even those companies companies that do not have a large internal team will have access to experts and consultants that help drive at least part of that. And then part of us as an outsourcing partner is to complement that team as well. And that's where I believe the most successful third-party collaborators or, or contractors operate. They not only are good at what they do, but they extend the capabilities of their clients as well. So the next thing I want to pick your brain on is outsourcing strategies, specifically what strategies could or should the biopharma industry utilize? And for example, I'm thinking of things like outsourcing different services to save on manufacturing costs or maybe booking services farther out in advance, you know, et cetera. So this is an interesting question, Meg. And I, I have to share that I have a dual experience here. For TFF Pharmaceuticals, we are both a contract consumer where we are developing our in-house products. So I work on the sponsor side, utilizing contract services, but we also work as a contractor with partners on potential out-licensing deals to apply our technology to their products, in which case I am then the service provider. So it's a very interesting question. So my answer is going to be based upon by both what I provide as well as what I consume. What I will say is from a contract perspective, again, it goes back to the very beginning of our conversation. It depends on the company. It can literally be 100% contracted to very minimal contracting. And those services, again, since I'm a drug product development scientist, oftentimes considered the formulation guy, what we're talking about typically is outsourcing the development and ultimate manufacturing of the biologic, for instance, when we speak about biotechnology. So these may be proteins, these could be bacteria, virus, virus-like particles. You know, everyone's familiar with the RNA type applications with the COVID vaccines. These could be monoclonal antibodies. It's, it's a huge plethora of materials. They can outsource that. There are people who will develop and scale that biologic manufacturing. And then on the other hand, then there you can do internal or external 
product development. So some companies on both sides that I work with will have internal capabilities to develop, say, their drug substance, uh, but need help with the formulation, the fill, finish, et cetera, which is where TFF Pharmaceutical plays with its thin film freezing technology. But what's often overlooked is, is it's typical to outsource your clinical trials. Most companies do are not a contract research organization that are pharmaceutical companies. They outsource with people that do that. Logistics, Meg, is, is a huge one these days with the increasing use of international studies and international suppliers. The outsourcing of logistics has become a fairly big and hot area because you need specialty people in order to facilitate not only the timelines, but also the customs, the shipping requirements. Because again, a lot of the biologics require specialty shipping at say refrigerated, frozen, or even ultra cold temperatures. And you're going into multiple regions for multiple parts of the development or manufacturing process. You could start with a drug substance made for instance in China. That could be then flown to or transported to Europe that is then processed in such a way that it's put into a vial. And then that vial is transported to the U.S. for clinical labeling, storage, and distribution. So it really depends on exactly, again, going back to the company, whether or not you're speaking about someone who's looking at virtual. And there are providers and there's what we call vertical integrators that will supply, which would say they can do it all. And then there's people that within companies like project managers who can then source that the full services required from say three or four key players. And then on the other hand, where larger pharma comes in and even the midsize we're seeing more and more, they're really facilitating a network of contractors. And then ultimately you can also outsource your regulatory work, including the, the writing of the um, new drug application if it's going into the US for instance and elsewhere. I have a few follow-up questions based on what you just said. When outsourcing development specifically, is there any difference in what is required, what is necessary information to gather, or just the process in general for the different drug substances, I think, or drug products? For example, RNA, MABs, uh, cell and gene therapies. Again, as someone who spent almost 30 years developing pharmaceuticals, you know, I tend to work my recommendation and what I see and try to work with clients on is work backwards. So the question is, what do you have and where do you want to be? So if it's a biologic, most likely you're an injectable or some sort of alternative route of administration to oral. So you're already moving into, you should be thinking about applications of technologies that enable specialized delivery. Then you start working back from there in terms of whether or not there's any sort of patient needs associated with, say, an administration device. So a lot of the biologics, for instance, are injectable. We tend to get caught up in all the new fancy stuff, but we have to sometimes fall back and think about the innovations made in self-administration of insulin, for instance. Insulin is the classic biologic. It's been around forever, and if you, follow, if you really look back in time, if you know someone who's a type 1 diabetic or a type 2 insulin-dependent diabetic, you'll see a transition. I remember my grandmother 30, 40 years ago would have vials and syringes, very menial, kind of like at your doctor's office, and today it's a couple clicks and a press of a button, and you're giving yourself insulin. Or you've got delivery systems like the pumps that, you know, people will wear on the back of their arms, et cetera, that deliver insulin continuously. And again, 
I use insulin as, a, as an example of a classic biologic. Working backwards, then it's a matter of, okay, once you understand what you want, then you begin to identify the best providers in those categories. And let's stay on a, let's stay example for injectables for now, since most biologics are injectable. You begin to look at then who can develop the injectable biologics with best-in-class technologies based upon then stepping one back further, the liabilities associated with the biologic. So when I talk about liabilities associated with the biologic, I'm speaking about what is its chemical stability? What is its physical stability? What is its stability in solution? Will it need cold chain storage? Will it need to be lyophilized into a powder or uh, processed with thin film freezing, for instance, where we play in order to enhance the drug product stability and routes of administration to meet, again, that very first goal or objective, which was we have a biologic for this indication for this route of administration, ideally. And again, that's oftentimes dictated by bringing marketing into the fold fairly early so that you understand what product you want yet you're trying to develop. And it, I can't stress that enough. It's very interesting. I, again, I've been doing development for 30 years and it's interesting how often you ask, well, what do you want the product to be? And people are like, well, we just, we just want to go test it in clinical trials. I say, well, you don't sell the clinical trial material. You sell the product and you want your clinical trial material to be as close to the clinical, uh, to the commercial product as possible, right? So always start with the end in mind. With that being said, then you go back one further, which is so we had stopped with the understanding the liabilities of the drug substance or the, or the biologic. And then again, that builds upon the class of contractors or outsourcing partners that you've selected with best in class applications for a biologic in that route of administration. And then you go, okay, how do I make the biologic, right? Is it something small enough like a peptide that I could do synthetic? Uh, so I could do synthesis because I can do maybe up to 15, 20 amino acids traditionally without doing any sort of fermentation, et cetera. But if I'm getting into more complex biologics, then I need to start looking at best-in-class providers for cell banks, purification, et cetera. And then that all stems in from, you know, where are we starting with in terms of characterization of the very early development materials uh, that were used to demonstrate, say, mechanism of action that allowed you to have an idea of if the compound would work and is usually the basis then for your intellectual property and your fundraise, early fundraising for smaller pharmaceuticals. So if I'm understanding correctly for a company looking to outsource specifically in development, obviously it's ideal to start with the end in mind. And the first thing they wanna think about is the method of administration, then the type of substance, then the process of sourcing like I don't know, raw materials? Generally. And again, that's because I'm a drug product scientist. Sure. <laughs> you, might, you might get a, a slightly different answer from a drug. Uh, I'm a drug product scientist. If you speak to a drug substance scientist, they may have the reverse. They need to start with us. But I tend to, like I said, because I because of my experience, I tend to start with the product and work backwards. And, and again, Meg, none of this is cast in stone. Every development program is unique. And it's not uncommon that you, as you go through development that you'll make modifications or changes to what you originally thought that product may look like. So as you go through, for instance, and you're thinking injectable, it's going to be a solution and a pen, you may find out that it actually would be then a lyophilized reconstitution for injection. 
what we see at TFF Pharmaceuticals is a high interest in customers. For instance, they when they've started down this injectable path, realize that they there may be an opportunity for non-invasive administration, where one that doesn't require parenteral or, or injection. And we can utilize technologies like TFF and others in order to, say, facilitate dry powder inhalation to the nose or the lungs, where we know that there's been strides in about the last 10 to 15 years to enhance bioavailability of biologics from nasal and pulmonary administration. So again, you, even though they, they may have an idea of starting here as you work backwards and then work forwards again with the actual work, it's not uncommon to also absorb some flexibility and kind of go where the data and the opportunity also dictate. But again, that's still based upon a bar that you set for yourself somewhere in the beginning on where you wanted to be. So you can measure relative success to where you want, where you thought you'd be. Then that also helps gauge the performance of your contractors, of your outsource partners. Are they delivering? either on the primary line, are they offering alternatives as you move forward, and are they adjusting to both the advantages and the liabilities of the compound they're working with? I think that's really insightful and just a general, sounds like a good practice to keep in mind, not only to start with the end in mind, but when you start with the end in mind, you can measure a successful outsourcing partnership. Yes, it helps to know where you're going. It's kind of like driving a car and going to another city. You know where you're going to go and that allows you to read the map appropriately. So if we're starting with the end in mind, we have all these different things we got to do, like determine the method of administration. Different companies are probably going to have a specialty in different routes of administration, obviously different drug products and before that drug substances, and then sourcing all those materials. Is it better to try and work with a company that's like a one-stop shop, if you will, or do you think it's better to potentially, obviously it's all going to depend, this is objective, but in general, is it better than instead to work with multiple companies? like outsourcing companies and integrate across? Well, again, it depends, <laughs> right? And again, so, and I apologize, I don't really mean to be that, that diffuse, but it really depends. So one, it'll depend upon the strength of the outsourcing partner, right? There has been considerable consolidation in the pharmaceutical contract development manufacturing organization space, that's uh, abbreviated CDMO. With that being said, it depends upon the strength. There's a lot of people who promote a one-stop shop. In my experience, I have found that there are very few people who execute it successfully. You can't do everything perfectly, in my opinion. So what you end up finding are best providers for the, what I would say the big chunks. So for instance, find the best provider for or contractor for the development and the manufacturing of the biologic starting material find the best provider or a collaborator who can then develop that into a finished dosage form. Sometimes they're the same. It never hurts to look because there are real advantages to time and cost by being vertically integrated within a single facility. For instance, you don't have to duplicate safety and handling for the compound within a given organization, for instance. Uh, a lot of times you don't duplicate project management fees when you stay within a single organization, for instance. And again, those are just examples of, of streamlining time, personnel, and cost. But the other part is, is that not, not every drug substance supplier offers drug product and reverse, reverse is also true. So again, not everyone is vertically integrated. You know, at the end of the day, you, everybody I would think would want the best provider for that stage of development. Now, with that being said, 
that may require you to go outside, right? So you may have, you may be working with a contract biologic developer, a contract drug product or dosage form in de- group, and you may end up be working with, especially in early to mid development, another party that specializes, say, in packaging and clinical distribution, where that's a really big piece early in development, but it becomes less of a, it becomes a non-issue once you're approved because you're no longer in clinical studies. You have a commercial. So usually the commercial manufacturing and distribution falls back into the commercial provider. But again, everything is different. There are some excellent CDMOs out there that offer a vertically integrated solution. What I have found, though, normally is that it is by evaluating one or more. It doesn't have to be a a waterfall effect where you're looking at everyone simultaneously, and usually financially, that's not feasible anyway. But what you do is you select two or three people who you think can do the job. And again, Going back to what we said, if you know the end in mind, then you can gauge success and whether or not you're on the correct trajectory with your contractors or whether or not you need to recognize that there's non-performance and you have to be willing to pull the plug and go somewhere else, right? And that's one of the biggest issues I see is that companies are real hesitant. They always think they can do it versus pulling soon enough. And my personal development style is you go somewhere to get it to a decision point as fast as possible, and it's only with success that you continue. It's not to say it's not painful to move, but again, that sometimes absorbing or settling has long-term ramifications in terms of maybe you can't commercially manufacture it, that you get caught in a quality audit because they didn't do something right, which can really be a detriment to your program. If you end up swapping, for lack of a better phrasing, outsourcing partners, especially in the development space, how far could that potentially push the timeline back? Well, it depends. I would say astute people will be monitoring and will be doing risk-averse activities all along. It's not uncommon, even in my current role, whereas TFF Pharmaceuticals, as developing our internal programs, we are looking at multiple vendors simultaneously. And there's really two reasons for that. One is in case something happens with the primary one, heaven forbid, you do occasionally hear about the fire, the hurricane, et cetera, right? Labor strikes, et cetera, that kind of happen. So you always have to be in a position to where if something were to happen with your primary, that you have a backup. Even in during clinical development, we find it very advantageous to have duplication of of resources. The other piece with that is is that that should your primary contractor not work out, you're already moving with secondaries, right? So in the case where they are not performing, and this could be because you know that they're either maybe they've scheduled in somebody else. Their team just, they, they've lost a lot of people to attrition or movement in the industry that's going on, right? A lot of people moving around, for instance, that they're not measuring up and it's time to, to then say, look, guys, it's not getting done and I need to move on. Now, today's outsourcing environment, having contingency plans is the norm. You, there's always multiple people that you would consider buying your drug substance from, your biologic you're always looking for more than one potential provider for your for your dosage form folks. Where, like I said, we at TFF Pharmaceuticals, we have multiple vendors that have our technology, for instance. So we're able to match up both our internal and external partners, us being an internal partner and our third-party partners. We can find availability and capacity and even geolocation. What makes sense in terms of minimizing, say, shipping distances or export-import from various coasts? 
it sounds like that it's pretty typical. And this is also kind of, it sounds like the case from other folks that I've spoken to that for everything you do, you have your primary partner and then your backup contractor. So then it sounds like if you ever have to swap between the two, maybe your first, your primary partner isn't doing what they said that they're doing all the examples that you gave, you kind of already set up to swap to the next company. Should that be necessary? Is that correct? Yes. Now, I did fail to mention one other thing is that during development, I've never seen someone go preclinical to commercialization with the same partner. Okay, so recognizing that development to manufacturing, and this be this is for biologics or small molecules. Usually, I've seen in my experience is is that you you end up making moves as you go along anyway, because the the providers that were great for your phase one work may not have the structure or the equipment needed, say, for the larger amounts needed in phase two or phase three, and those folks who are really good in clinical development, say in supporting your animal work in your phase one to three, may not be a good contract commercial manufacturer, right? So they may not have the quality systems, the inspection, the history, the pricing, that models that you need in order to launch the drug, as well as the earlier folks may not have the scale to support the amounts of material you'll ultimately sell. So I need to stop and say that it's not uncommon as you go, even during development, that you will be moving contractors. And even if you stay within a vertical contractor, chances are you're going to be moving sites, right? So you're moving up the ladder, but you're but the product's moving from, say, city A to city B <laughs> to another facility. So even though that's within a single organization, where there are benefits to that, as I'd mentioned about, you know, streamlining environmental health and safety aspects, project management, there's still then necessary transfer, engineering batches, new stability studies, et cetera, even within an organization, moving your product from one side of manufacture to another. So the other aspects, so Meg, just so that we're clear, one was a contingency plan, right, of having duplication. If something happens, like we said, underperformance, act of God. The other is recognizing, accepting that you will be moving somewhere between development and commercial manufacturing. If it's basically, you know, guaranteed that at least at some point, companies who are working with outsourcing partners are going to have more than one partner, what are some of the biggest challenges then for transitioning from one partner versus the other as they move kind of down the supply chain? Really understanding the scope of what you need in the next step, Meg. As you complete one milestone, say you finish your phase one. And you know that your current contractor can only support you in phase one and your phase two supplies then are going to be larger. Maybe they're international and your previous supplier isn't comfortable with a qualified person audit, for instance, to move you into Europe or XUS. Coming out of phase one, as you, you'll need time to do that transfer, which includes identification of the next suitable partner. And part of that is starting with, well, do I have a specialty technology, which would require me to to identify a very small subset of potential suppliers. Even if I have a more widely accepted technology, then I have to go through a process to find out who's the best fit, who can handle my compound, who has the best success in those types of transfers, and then who can handle the scale. And even at that particular transition, at each step, you always ask yourself, is that collaborator or contractor able to take me to commercial? 
even if they're a good phase two intermediate provider, am I already having discussions with them about registration batches and commercialization? Or am I already knowing that I'm going to be jumping again? And that's it's neither good nor bad. It, it's what's best for that phase of development. And there are many variables that go into that, not least including cost, availability, quality, et cetera. So that's not a bad thing. It's just, again, you're just asking yourself the question. With that being said, the next biggest piece then is just understanding what the needs are. And that is often in flux as you progress, because a lot of times the goals for the next step are not known at the time you actually need to make the decision for the move. I'm sure we'll come back to this because that's a very that's a very good question. Like I said, the biggest piece is I just want to reiterate a lot of times what hinders you moving forward is that you do not have a full set of objectives coming out of the first stage because of the lag associated with getting clinical data feedback <laughs> reports. And then once you even have that from the previous study, then it's a whole nother ball game in terms of, well, what does the next study look like? And, it, and you usually need to know what the next study looked like in order to develop and manufacture, either continue the development along the current pathway, but at a different scale, or do you need to change the development to something else? This might be a really obvious question, so forgive me if it is. Sounds like there's a lot of data that is essentially accumulated over this entire process when creating a drug product. Would you also work with yet another outsourcing partner to collect and process this data, or does each outsourcing partner that you work with basically collect this data and then give it back to the original company? That's a great question. A lot of times in earlier development, the company and it and its employees will accumulate the data into a data room and usually use some sort of service in order to organize that. As you progress further along, your regulatory group usually grows or the regulatory outsourcing grows and they become the central repository as they are the ones who will be centralizing all the information eventually for the filing, the commercial filing. With that being said, as we were talking about choosing your, your collaborators, it's also very important to understand those collaborators who actually will finish the job and deliver the reports. Because, you know, by the time the reports come out, 95% of the work is done, most of the money has been paid, and people are already trying to move on to new work in the contract environment. So it's also very important to identify contractors who are timely uh, in completing the reports. And, and that data, and again, the, lot, the raw data stays with the contractors. So what you're looking for is the necessary data to enable your filings. And that's usually comprehensive reports and maybe raw data sets. And again, that's usually brought on through either internal regulatory or outsourced regulatory. But you're right, it's a tremendous amount of data. I'm old enough to remember when they used to describe when paper-based new drug applications were delivered to the FDA and they would describe literally tractor trailer fulls of paper with all the data. <laughs> that is a big no thank you for me. Um, yeah. No, that sounds dreadful. <laughs> so then I kind of want to switch gears a little bit here. And we're talking about a lot of areas that companies can outsource and maybe some of the benefits of why a company might outsource. Let's talk about the flip side, which is where should biopharma companies reconsider outsourcing and instead perform it in-house? That's a great question. So what should they not outsource? In my role as a development scientist for TFF Pharmaceuticals, what I'm looking to do by not outsourcing is to minimize cost 
right? So sometimes it is more cost efficient to do the work internally, especially if you have access to adequate facilities. The other piece is that by internalizing at least some of the early development, you can usually eliminate or identify your leads a little quicker because you don't have the logistics issue. Right. So I, I'm not moving stuff around. So and that's and in today's world, even with FedEx and World Courier, et cetera, moving stuff around is still days to weeks worth of time that can be lost. The other piece here is is insourcing where retaining institutional knowledge or intellectual property is key. So, for example, at, at TFF Pharmaceuticals, we have a proprietary powder engineering technology, and we are very careful to do as much of the early development as possible in order to retain the know-how internally. And that provides us with a very strong intellectual property position, both for our internal programs as well as our external partnered programs. The other consideration, if there's something special, right? So the, the biologics field is rife with very unique and, and highly specialized activities. Uh, it's not uncommon in the biologic space for a lot of the internal biologic development to be handled in-house, even in very small labs. And that allows them to build libraries and to fine tune their applications very rapidly before transferring to a development partner for the eventual scale and how you will scale the manufacturing. Because again, the iterations necessary in that field are quite large. And a lot of times it's more cost effective and time effective to actually set up a small lab and do it yourself, assuming you have an internal capability or expertise to do that. The next thing I want to talk to you about is, are there any specific, for lack of a better term, tasks that you notice more and more companies are choosing not to outsource? And why do you think that is? That's a tough one. All your questions have been really good. They're point. They're on point and they're tough, which is great. Because a lot of times you don't know that you, I, I don't live inside the other companies to know what they decided to in-house because usually when you, they show up, they, they've got their team, et cetera, right? What I usually will say is that what they don't outsource are going to be things like the financial aspect of it. They won't outsource, the, obviously, the, the upper management, the fundraising component to a large extent. But I would say that the other part then is that maybe they, they're hesitant to outsource project management, for instance, right? I'm seeing a larger growth of especially virtual companies that know that they're going to be managing a network of contractors wanting to retain in-house project management. And I would go so far as to reclassify project management in that case as program management. So let me, let me make the distinction. So project management, we have this general understanding of there's a task or an objective, you know, and there's a certain steps to get to it, right? And it very well may be on, say, the manufacturing of the drug substance and how it goes into drug product and how it gets to clinical study. Well, that's, that's something a project manager traditionally would look at is how do you get task ABC? Well, the program manager, I'll differentiate and say, well, they're looking not only at making that product, but they're also then looking at how does that fit into the clinical development plans? How does that fit into the regulatory plans? How is that interfacing with management's expectations for the product? How does that fit into the fundraising and say the cash burn position of the company? Everybody does a little bit of it, but what I will say is I'm seeing companies that have a very sophisticated ability to manage not only external contractors as um, stakeholders, but also managing their internal stakeholders as well. And I call these guys program managers. 
I feel like one of those funny things about journalism is a lot of times we'll ask those tough questions and we'll be like, we know this is subjective, but can you make this an objective answer? Thank you very much for answering, you know, what I know isn't an easy question. So I think the last thing I am going to ask you for today is any final thoughts on outsourcing and biopharma, things that you want to add, maybe that we haven't talked about today? You know, like I said, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity in outsourcing. It, it's kind of speed dating in a way. The number of people that you can meet and interact with is quite large. Uh, recognizing that innovation is ever growing and that innovation is driven by any number of, of providers. Those providers can be anywhere from individuals, they can be academic institutions, they can be com small commercial entities to very large entities. And recognizing that I think in today's development environment, that outsourcing is a way to reach best in class for your needs. And it's also a best, a, a way to de-risk your programs as well. Even if you were internally developing, uh, I could see a situation where you could still run a contingency plan with an outsourced company, again, to mitigate the risk that we discussed earlier in the day. I am not aware sitting here today of a company that's 100% insourced, right? So that they do everything from start to finish anymore. The world we live in and the specialization that's required at various steps in the development of a biological pharmaceutical program are such that you need multiple groups with specialty expertise in order to execute. I think one of the things that you said was really interesting about, like before we talked about how you might have a primary partner and then a backup essentially. Yes. And if you do something in-house and you insource it, you might still have a backup outsourcing partner. It's really good for companies, it sounds like, to think about the ultimate supply chain, especially after everything we've learned with COVID, where uh, we, we need to have backups in order to keep yeah. the supply chain you know, rolling. Well, the other consideration, Meg, I'll give you in, as we near the completion of our discussion, is there's also opportunities here because it, with any sort of secondary consideration, you can always use that as a challenge to your internal costs and time. On one hand, earlier I was saying, you know, there, you, in, you insource in order to control timing and costs, but by running a secondary contingency plan, you always have a check to see whether or not it makes sense to go external, right? So recognizing that it, it's a way of doing checks and balances, if you will, in the development program. Thank you so much, John, for letting me pick your brain today. I really appreciate it. Meg, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Stay tuned for future episodes of the Drug Solutions Podcast with the Pharmaceutical Technology Editors. If you want to stay in touch with the Pharmaceutical Technology team, subscribe to this podcast as well as to our newsletters. When you sign up for our e-newsletters, you will be updated about future episodes of Drug Solutions, receive our magazines, learn about upcoming webinars, and hear about episodes of Drug Digest, which is a video series. Thank you to everyone for joining us for this episode of the Drug Solutions Podcast. We will see you next time.